Um, So yeah, we're looking at Exodus chapter 1 and 2 this morning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, 
He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Thanks, Caro. Um, if you're in youth church, if you're in year five to year eight, you're going out now with Mike and Brent. And um, just as a way of um, adding to that message of the SRE teachers just before as well, if you're anyone who's sitting in church and you're thinking, geez, I wish I had more non-Christian friends I could share the gospel with regularly and all that sort of thing, go talk to Lexi or someone else in youth ministry because I feel like whenever you want that, desire that, um, you get that regular chance to share with non-Christians when you share in kids ministry or youth ministry or whatever it is. So, yeah, great opportunity there. Now, I'm going to be bringing to you Exodus 1 and 2. I'm going to pray very quickly before we get started and I get set up here. Um, So, let's do that. Um, Lord, we pray as we open your word today, um, we might have ears to hear and hearts that might be willing to be changed by you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, when I was a teenager, I was a little dyslexic kid who hated to read. I had these blue-tinted glasses, and I actually avoided reading if I could. But when I became an adult, I actually started to enjoy reading, and it kind of started with this love of story, right? Sort of started with stories in films and then comic books, but then eventually it kind of became about audiobooks and then novels. And then eventually I find, found myself like asking people what they're reading because I actually enjoy talking about what their people are reading because I enjoy the stories of it all, right? And in fact, it's a point now where, well, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff was preaching. He said he wanted a specific song read at his or sung at his funeral. I actually want a story read at my funeral because I really love stories so much. Um, and it's actually because I fell in love with story. I realized that there's real truth about the world that you can communicate in a really powerful way through story. That's kind of why I fell in love with it. Now, not all stories do this, but I think all the best stories do. 
Let me give you one example with the book Animal Farm, which you might have read. I'm hoping a lot of people have read already and some maybe even kids have read. I know they make you read it in school still. Um, Animal Farm by George Orwell. It's a story about some animals who rise up against their farmer and they take on the farm for themselves and they run it themselves without the human, right? But actually what the story is really about is George Orwell's comment on communism ideals and what power does to people and the use of language and the truth about those things, right? It's a tr- it tells truth about the world while still being a fictional story, okay? Well, why this is an actu- actually important to us? It's because the Bible does this as well. Now, I don't mean that it's a fictional story. It's a true story, okay? But it's still written in story form, okay? It's, a, it's Exodus, the story that we're looking at now, is written to us in story form, and that fits within the Torah, which is also, again, the first five books of the Bible written to us in story form. In fact, we need to keep this in mind when we see the series, this series in Exodus because this story, it's not just simply recounting history for history's sake. It's not just recounting the events because they actually happened. It's written to us and it's recorded in specific ways, intentionally constructed by the author to highlight the points of the narrative. In fact, we're going to see in this series of Exodus that God actually delivers, demands, and dwells with his people over the three movements of the story of Exodus. Delivers, demands, and dwells. We're going to really start with that delivering one today. Now, as with many stories, you have to pay attention to the details, okay? Modern-day authors... They usually use details to add colour to their story and entertain their, sto- their, their readers. But with the biblical authors, authors, they don't often actually give you these little details of whether somebody is blue-eyed, brown-haired or tall or whatever, unless that detail is really specific to the story itself, unless it actually is important to the story. In fact, biblical authors are doing this all the time throughout their Bible. They kind of link these little details together from one story to the next because as you link one story to the next, you kind of see the overarching meaning to the larger story that's at play. To see what I'm talking about here, let's start with Exodus 1 and let's read the first few verses of Exodus 1. So read with me. Exodus 1, 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Hmm. So they're fruitful and multiplying, right? Where have we kind of heard that before in our Bibles? Well, actually, it comes from Genesis 1, right? So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them, and male and female created them, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Actually, this is familiar again from the story of Noah, as well, because after Noah gets off the ark, 
The verse reads, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So now you kind of get to the end of the Genesis story. You start the Exodus story, and it opens with the Israelites there in Egypt, and they're being fruitful and multiplying. They're doing what those blessings that have been sitting there since Genesis 1, right? This is kind of like this little Garden of Eden scene in Egypt, where, they're, where Israel's people are finally fulfilling those blessings. But there's more to this story, right? Because just like the story of Garden of Eden, it doesn't go well immediately after that. So Exodus 1, read again, Exodus 1, verse 8 to 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fill and fight against us and escape from the land. Now what follows in this next section is actually three trials for Israel, where Pharaoh will try and destroy Israel. But you have to remember another important detail from the Genesis story. This one actually comes from us from Abraham's story, right? So when Abraham received the blessing, the one that actually Mike was talking about this morning, when he received the blessing from God, the blessing read like this. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. So God is saying here that if you bless, if people bless Abraham and his descendants, then they too will be blessed. But if they curse Israel and their descendants, well, then they will be cursed too. And actually, God will turn that curse on the Israelites into a blessing in anyway. Because that's kind of what happens in this story, right? The first curse is that Pharaoh will put a slave master over the Israelites. But this curse backfires again because we get at the end of that section. What happens? They're being fruitful and multiplying anyway, right? The second curse is that he tries to get the Hebrew midwives to kill the boys when they're born, right? Only here he's, he's got the Hebrew midwives who are led by these two women, uh, Shifra and Pua, right? Their names actually mean beautiful and sparkle, okay? These are like two little Eve-type figures in this Garden of Eden scene who they trick the trickster here. And they don't do what Pharaoh's told them. They, they kind of trick him with this, little, with this little thing about how Hebrew women are more vigorous. And so, again, at the end of this curse, what happens is they're fruitful and multiply again. The curse backfires on Pharaoh again. And then we get to this third curse, and it's actually the shortest of the curses in this section. It's only one verse. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people... Every son that is born into the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you, you shall let every daughter live. And after this curse, you kind of left wondering, well, does this one work? Like, does Pharaoh, does this curse not backfire on, on Pharaoh? Well, actually, you see whether it backfires or not through the rest of the Exodus story. And this is actually where you see the beginnings of God delivering his people from this curse, right? from the oppressor. But before we get to chapter 2, we need to notice something very important here for the rest of the Exodus story. 
This, is, this third curse that, that Pharaoh's just done on the Israelites, it's actually setting up part of the rest of the Exodus story later in Exodus. Exodus is probably most famous for this section of the ten plagues on Egypt. You probably most, like there's many movies been made about this. That's probably the thing you think of most when you think of Exodus. This curse sets that up because the first plague on Egypt is to have the Nile River turn to blood. Just as the Israelite babies were thrown into the water, into the Nile, now the Nile is running with their blood, right? That's what you're meant to be thinking. But not only this, the last plague in the series is that, well, instead of the Israelite baby boys being killed, now it's the Egyptian first sons who are being killed, right? This curse is going to backfire on Pharaoh throughout those plagues. And you'll see that God is actually delivering his people through, these, through this time. Now you get to chapter 2. Okay, let's read again in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, we need to slow down a little bit here because firstly, unless you see unless you're reading from perhaps the King James version of the Bible, there's probably a little detail that you might have missed here. The Hebrew translation for the word basket in all our modern day versions, it's actually the same word used to describe Noah's ark, right? We actually get a kind of clue about this in the modern day versions when you notice what Moses' mother covers the basket in. She covers it in pitch and tar, the same thing that Noah covers the ark in, right? So modern day translations translate the word as basket because that's literally what the word means and that's what she would have put him in. But the King James keeps it as ark because it's trying to link those two stories in your mind as you're reading it. It's trying to link those two stories together because just as God delivers Noah through the chaos waters of the flood, so too Moses here is being delivered through the chaos waters of the Nile, right? He's being saved by an ark just as Noah was. But there's more here too because, in fact, this is where I want my main point of my sermon to be coming through to you. And this is actually where I think it's going to be leading you to Jesus. And we'll, you'll see how that works in a second. Everything that goes on in this story for Exodus, everything that happens to Moses is actually going to be mirrored by everything that happens to the Israelite people. Okay? This is, this is really cool. And this is why I think this is intentionally written here and constructed in this way. Everything that happens to Moses is then going to happen to the Israelite people later on. I've made this little chart. Hopefully, if you got it up there, Danny. Excellent. Thank you. I've tried to put things in a little chart for you so you can sort of see the parallels here. So first of all, Moses' name means drawn out. Okay? Yahweh is going to draw out his people from Egypt. That one's pretty easy. You probably saw that one yourself even. Um, Moses is put in the basket or the ark among the reeds 
on the Nile. Israel's going to go through the sea of reeds when Yahweh parts the waters for them to escape from Pharaoh. The, sea, the Red Sea that we're probably used to in modern day um, uh, iterations of the story is the Red Sea. It's actually a bad translation, the Red Sea. Better translation would be the Sea of Reeds, right? So he's putting the reeds and Israel go through the Sea of Reeds. Moses' mother is given wages for nursing her own son just as Israel's women will plunder the Egyptians by asking for articles of gold when they leave Egypt, right? Moses goes into Pharaoh's house, but then he escapes to Midian when Pharaoh tries to kill him. And just as Israel will go into Egypt and then will escape to Midian to, when Pharaoh tries to kill them. So everything that's happening here with Moses' story is then reflected with later in the story with what happens to Israel. These are mirroring images of the story, the story beats as we go along. Let's keep reading a little bit further. Exodus 2, we'll come back to this chart later. Exodus 2, 7 to 10. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, actually, I just want to pause here for a second because notice how many awesome women there are in this story, first of all. Like, we've got the Hebrew midwives, that, the, the beautiful and sparkle. Um, we've got, the, we've got the, uh, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and we've got Pharaoh's daughter as well. And even just the irony of the fact that as Pharaoh is trying to kill Moses by throwing him into the Nile, and then he does get put into the Nile in a little ark, and then made by his mother, and then who draws him out? Well, it's Pharaoh's daughter, like the women, the, the, the guy who's trying to kill him is the daughter of him, is the one who saves him. I just feel like it's, it's really ironic here, and it's awesome. Anyway, I'm going to keep, keep reading. Exodus 2, 11 to 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who, uh, who made you prince or judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, in this section of the story, Moses is kind of described in a similar way to the way God is. It's as if Moses fancies himself a little bit of the judge or the God of his Hebrew people, because you get a sense of this with the phrasings that Moses goes down to see the burdens of his people, this is similar to how God will later go down to see the burdens of his people when, and the, when they're being oppressed by Pharaoh. So these similar phrasings, it's as if Moses fa does fancy himself as the judge of Egypt, or judge of Hebrews, sorry, in Egypt. But 
he's rejected as that judge. He's setting himself up as that judge without God and so rejected. And then he becomes afraid for his own life when Pharaoh tries to kill him. He runs to the desert and he sits down at a well, right? Now, let me do a quick book plug here because I've been reading this book. It's called The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Outler. And this guy, he, his job, I think, is, is to try and point out to you all the different techniques that the biblical authors use in Hebrew writing, in Hebrew narrative writing particularly, right? And this is one of the things that he, he's pointed out in his book. What we're about to read in this section is a typical ancient love scene, okay? It's a typical ancient love scene where you're kind of meant to see what's happening before it happens. You're kind of meant to see, oh, I, I can sort of see what's happening here. Like, that's the feeling you're meant to have, right? Let me, I'll try and help you through this a little bit by giving you like a modern day version of this, a 21st century version of this, because we have these sorts of tropes today as well. Okay, so imagine this scene, okay? There's a, a, a girl, she's 20-something years old. She's carrying too many books through a library, you know, it's piled up. She trips on something, spills the books all over the floor. Uh, a young man in his 20s comes over, helps her pick up the books. As they're picking up the books, they almost touch. They touch each other as they go for the same book and they recoil and then finally they collect up all the books and then he notices she's reading the same book as, as he is. And they talk for a moment about how great that author is and, you know, they, they look at each other a moment too long and, just, and then she says, well, I've got to go, bye. And then he says, hang on, wait, what's your name? And she says, well, it's Annie. And he says, I'm Steve, right? And then they go, maybe the next day you see each other again. They go get some coffee and then they wind up having four kids and moving to Wagga, right? That's how the story works. You know, that's how the... But you get that sense of, you know, you can see what's happening in the story here as it's being told. That's what you're meant to feel here. This is an ancient Hebrew version of that, okay? The, the story beats kind of go like this, right? Uh, a man or someone who represents the man sometimes goes to a foreign land, they meet a foreign woman by the well, somebody's animals are watered by the other in some way, and then the guy goes back to the father's house, where then negotiations start about who's going to marry who, right? Let me return back to my table now, because this is where we're seeing those last few parallels between Moses and Israel, at least the ones I'm pointing out to you. So Moses will meet the priest of God, Jethro, when he goes into Midian, right? Just as Israel will meet God in Midian as well. Moses will meet and marry his wife there in Midian, and Israel will meet and marry their God there in Midian through the covenant that they, that they share together. So everything that we read in the story of Exodus, everything, that, everything about Moses' deliverance is then going to be brought through in Israel's deliverance, okay? There are parallels here that are intentionally written. In fact, this is the intention for the author of Exodus, but also the story of the Torah itself. And we need to meditate on this to actually see the story of Exodus play itself out. 
Now, I did say that this was going to ultimately lead us to Jesus. Well, this is kind of where, where this gets to that, okay? Because I actually believe the entire Bible is constructed in this way to lead us to Jesus. Exodus, yes, in the Torah, the Old Testament, the New, it's all leading us to Jesus, right? Let me, let me tell you one more story about a foreign woman or a man going to a foreign land and meeting a woman by the well. Because this time it's a story of a Samaritan woman and this time the man is Jesus, right? It's the same story being played out again. In fact, did you ever read, when you've read this story in the past perhaps, you might have thought it's a little bit out of left field that they start talking about who she's married to. It's because you were meant to be seeing that the intention of the story was somebody's about to get married feels like a proposal scene coming up. Let's read in John chapter 4, verse 5 to 18. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's even Jacob's well, one of the guys who's, who's had the same event happen to him. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. See, kind of feeling like it's going the same way. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Deep. Where would you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Have you who he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring in him of water dwelling, uh, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, one Uh, And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is very true. You see, this scene again is meant to be that typical love scene, but here the author subverts the love scene and the climax that you're expecting doesn't actually happen. Jesus doesn't marry this woman and in fact she's actually been married five times before. The love scene is subverted because we're actually waiting for a greater love scene to be played out one in which Jesus is meant to marry the church, one in which Jesus lays his life down for the church. So you see, Jesus is that new and better Moses figure in this story. Remember how Moses goes through those same trials as God delivers him, the same trials that Israel does? Well, Jesus too, his story mirrors the story of Israel again. Jesus is born in Bethlehem to a ruler who tries to kill that generation of people, all the young boys, two and, young, two and um, older, or younger, I mean. He escapes into Egypt, 
and then he's brought out of Egypt when that ruler dies. He is taken into the desert to be tested. Israel spent 40 years in the desert. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. While he's in the desert, he's tested by Satan. Then at the end of that, he's brought into the Jordan and baptized by John the Baptist, just as Israel is brought through the Jordan into the promised land, right? There are parallels happening here. So Jesus is like, Jesus, just like the Moses story, Jesus' story mirrors that of Israel. And we know this by meditating on God's word, that Jesus, we actually know that Jesus' story is not done here. Jesus is going through a trial that he then will bring his people through as well. Jesus is going into death, and then he comes out the other side of death as a new and resurrected body. Just to his people will go into death and come out the other side, a new and resurrected body. So I actually come now to the end of the sermon where I need to do the application or the implication part of the sermon. Some people call this the so what part of the sermon. And I can tell you, I actually really hate doing this part of the sermon. Um, I hate the whole, right, okay, now, so what do you do? And you go out into the world for this week, and what do you do? Such and such, I want you to do this. But I actually feel like, in a way, I've kind of already given you what I want you to take away here. It's that well, nothing in this story is by accident, right? These story beats... These particular phrasings, these repeated themes or the subversion of the repeated themes and repeated phrases, they're actually meant to stick out to us as we read our Bibles. When the Bible calls us to meditate on God's word, these are the things that we're meant to meditate on. We're not just meant to read it once and then put it down thinking that that was a good read or to think that it's just simply recounting history because that's what happened and so therefore someone had to write it down. We're meant to meditate on this story. And as we read the end of the story, often this gives light to the start of the story again. And so when you read it the second time through, you notice things that you didn't notice the first time. In fact, let me explain what I mean by meditating on God's word because I don't mean read it and do some yoga or light some candles and chant, okay? By meditating on God's word... I mean to read and reread God's word regularly. And if you're not a reader, listen to it. I personally haven't been a reader and I still listen to my audiobooks or my audio Bible regularly. To read Exodus through and then maybe even reading Genesis as well. We've seen some of the parallels between Exodus and Genesis. In fact, if you really if you really want to do it, you need to read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy as well. See how it fits within the larger story of this Torah. And in fact, really, you get a sense of how Exodus works when you see that within the whole Torah itself. But I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, Darcy, I'm flat out reading Exodus 1 and 2 here. Now you're expecting me to read the whole Torah? I mean, this is just the first week of Exodus, right? And I realize that everyone's coming here with different levels of awareness about the, the different parts of the Bible that they may have read before or maybe are reading for the first times. But if we're going to be children of the book, then let's be children of the book in whatever sense or, or in whatever capabilities each of one of us have. In fact, if you're looking for a more achievable goal, well, maybe make this Exodus series 
Don't just read the Exodus story at once. Read it through at least twice so that as you see the end of the story, you might then be renewed as you read the beginning of the story again. Because I can't make this stuff up. These links are there. Like God has created this word over millennium time frame and he's put these story beats in there to link each story together and pointing us to who Jesus is. See, one day we're actually going to be able to know God by speaking with him face to face. You're going to talk with God. You're going to see God's face. You're going to know what he's like from speaking with him. But from now, we have to be content with his word. God's word, I think, is an intricately put piece of art that must be divinely inspired like that. And as he reveals little by little who he is to me, I just sit in awe of the face of who God is. Because for now, we see only a reflection in a mirror. Well, then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Let's pray. Um, Lord, as we sit under your word and as we are children of the book, we pray that we would be careful to see it as knowing you when we open our Bibles, Lord. We pray we would read carefully and we pray, Lord, we would, we would desire to know who you are and be known by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.